0: Hello. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink, a writer, a reader, and a former bookseller, and this is the Bookseller podcast. Hello. Welcome to the third edition of the Bookseller podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858, reporting on everything from the publication of The Mill on the Floss to the launch of Harry Potter. The Bookseller also runs the annual British Book Awards, which is like the Baftas for books. In this edition, we're talking to Hannah Beckerman about her novel, If Only I Could Tell You. Feels like my fourth book because there's two manuscripts on
1: my computer. (laughs) (laughs) I've never seen the light of day.
0: To Alice O'Keefe and Tom Tivnan about February publishing. And we'll have an audiobook extract from Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Marlon James.
2: Truth eats lies, just as a crocodile eats the moon. No, I did not kill him.
0: And we'll be talking to this month's book doctors about which books they choose for our patients who want to know what to pick up next. First, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. Tom Tivnan is the bookseller's managing editor. Hello. And Alice O'Keefe is books editor. Hello. And with me, as he is every month, is the bookseller's chief exec, Nigel Roby. Hello. Alice, you're the books editor at The Bookseller. Explain your job to us.
3: Well, yes, I have been books editor of The Bookseller for about 10 years now. And the short answer to that question is that I read books for a living, which always makes everybody very jealous at parties. (laughs) Um, But it is true. I read an awful lot. I write the big monthly piece that we do about new fiction and then there are freelancers who work for the magazine who cover non-fiction and children's. And then I'm also lucky enough to look after the author profiles, some of which I do myself and some of which I commission. But yes, generally I'm always thinking about books, reading books, talking about books.
4: And
0: what is your book of the month for February?
3: Well, my absolute top pick for February is the most wonderful novelist. She's one of my absolute favourites. Um, her name is Tessa Hadley and the novel is Late in the Day. Uh, she's a British writer. Uh, this is her seventh novel. Uh, and in my opinion, she really is criminally underrated. She is just the most astonishing writer, and yet she's never appeared on a big literary prize shortlist over here, although she has won the US-based Wyndham Campbell Prize. And her fans just include an absolute who's who of brilliant contemporary novelists. These are just three authors who've praised her incredibly highly, Zadie Smith, Anne Enright, and Hilary Mantel. It's not bad, is it? It's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. And I just think she really deserves to be much, much better known than she is. I think if you like reading Elizabeth Strout, for example, you would really enjoy um, Tessa Hadley's novels. Well, I'll talk about this book in particular, Late in the Day. It's basically the story of four relationships um, between two married couples. Um, there's Christine and Alex and Lydia and Zachary. And Christine and Lydia have been friends since school and the two of them went to university together where they met Alex. And the novel opens in the present day with the news of a death. Uh, Lydia phones her best friend Christine from hospital with the news that Zachary is dead. And what the novel does is then explore how this loss reshapes their lives in really unexpected ways. To start with, obviously everybody is completely shocked and Lydia is just destroyed by grief and she actually moves in with Christine and Alex. Uh, But then as time goes on, you realise how things are changing between the three and the novel actually goes back to the 80s and we sort of find out how these relationships have tangled and distangled um, over time. No spoilers, but there is a a significant betrayal in the novel. But the thing that makes Tessa Hadley stand out, really, is how nuanced and precise her writing is. She writes in a very sort of... um, It's not fancy, it's not ornamental, it's quite sort of pared back and clean. And she's very interested in the minutiae of relationships, and particularly between men and women and how they interact. Her psychological insight is just extraordinary. It's it's so truthful. You just read a sentence and you think, oh, she's absolutely got it. She's absolutely got how one
0: feels in in that situation. And do you think? Because I'm a big fan of hers, but I haven't read this novel yet. Oh, so it, it, this novel, in terms of her overall oeuvre, am I going mm. to discover new things about her? Um,
3: I think it feels to me like it's the first time she's writing about really long relationships between men and women mm-hmm. um, about a marriage. Because um, I think she's always... I mean, some people have criticised her for this, for writing so-called domestic novels about middle-class women in the latter half of the 20th century. So I think, in one sense, this is more of what you love about her, than, you know, very mm-hmm. close observation, and on a, such a granular level every word in every sentence works so hard. Like there's, there's, you know, there's no waste, there's no excess. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's quite a slim volume. But the other thing I really enjoyed about this novel is there are four sort of main characters, although Christine is is the most central character. And another sort of strand is her struggle, um, which I think will be familiar to lots of women, actually, to balance her sort of, because she's an artist, Mm -hmm. a, a fine artist, to balance her creative interior life with the sort of real life of marriage and family and children and just sort of sort of lubricating everything Mm -hmm. and and making sure that everybody has what they need and I thought that was really well done and I have to say the ending because as we all know sometimes endings can be a bit disappointing the ending is stunning it's really a sort of uplifting and it's just perfect. I won't say anything about it. So I well, I know it. what, I'm <laughs> dashing <laughs> off to
0: read as soon it's, as we have finished. It's really wonderful. Finished. Tell us quickly about a couple of other things that you've loved this month.
3: Well, I really enjoyed Adele by Leila Slimani. Technically, this is her debut novel, but here in the UK, her second novel was published first, Lullaby, and that was created quite a storm. And this is quite bleak, I would say, but brilliant. And it is the story of Adele, who is a married mother of one, who lives in Paris in a beautiful apartment. And she's married to a surgeon. They have a child, a young boy, and she works as a journalist. And so, on the surface, everything is fine. And she is actually hiding this really a shocking secret. And she's compulsively drawn to sex with strangers. And she's completely addicted and she sort of builds her day around these um, encounters with all sorts of random men. It's interesting because some people have described it as erotic and I don't think it's erotic at all. (laughs) I think it's really uh, disturbing and it's quite sort of uncomfortable
0: to read. I I think people get confused and use the word erotic to describe something that has sex in it.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly, because it's really not erotic at all. But she's kind of an enigma, Adele, and the author isn't really interested in justifying her behaviour to us or explaining it, you know, giving it like, a psychological reason, mm. in her past as to why she's like this. Because on the one hand, Adele seems to be about to destroy her life, but on the other
0: hand, she's telling us... It's what makes her feel truly alive. Wow. So, uh, yes. Thank you. And, um, and I know we're, having, we're interviewing Hannah Beckerman later on in the programme. I know you mm. really enjoyed mm. her book, mm. if only I could tell you. Yes, this is
3: fantastic. And I think if you are a fan of Jojo Moyes' writing, you will really enjoy this. It's a story of a family secret which has devastated three generations of the same family. Uh, the matriarch, Audrey... Her daughters, Jess and Lily, and then their respective daughters, who are teenagers, uh, Mia and Phoebe. And Audrey has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. But the one thing she wants to do before she dies is to bring her sort of splintered family back together. It's really so compellingly structured. You spend the whole novel thinking, what on earth? has gone on in this family to fracture it so badly. It's brilliantly done. It's really about the toxicity of secrets when repressed. And I have to tell you, there is a midpoint twist that absolutely changes everything. <laughs> everything
0: you thought yes, you Yes, know. <laughs>
3: absolutely everything. Um, and yet, as, as well as obviously having this dark secret, it's also quite uplifting as well, you know, when the family does... Um, pull together. Mm -hmm. So yes.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Alice. Tom, what else is happening in February?
4: Um, Well, I think it's a big month for what uh, the trade is called memoirs that matter, Um, (laughs) which is a rather rubbish term, but it's kind of a catch all for books broadly by, and I put this in air quotes, ordinary people talking about extraordinary things. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a few recently that have gone on to sell it really well. One was called The Last Act of Love by someone called (laughs) Kathy (laughs) Ransenberg. I don't know whatever happened to her. But I mean, broadly, it used to be that the celeb memoirs were the big things that sold everything. But now it's these books Mm -hmm. by ordinary people who talk about things that are kind of universal sort of stories about their family dynamics, grief, mental health issues, coping with illness, love, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. There's a few really big ones that are coming out this month. And um, one of my favorites is Catherine Simpson's When I Had a Little Sister. Catherine Simpson, previously, she wrote a, a novel, which is based around a Lancashire farming family. And so this is kind of, I guess, in some ways, the real life story to that. She grew up in Lancashire in a farm. And this isn't a spoiler, because it's on the front cover. It's about her sister. Catherine Simpson looks back on this to kind of interrogate how her kind of dysfunctional family operated and was this a reason why her sister eventually committed suicide that sounds really bleak and it is quite heartbreaking at times but it's really funny as well because she delves into this crazy family history of her ancestors it's really a wonderful book
0: and i really enjoyed it and actually a bit like tessa hadley she's just so good at the detail the, yeah, yeah, the detail yeah. of it somehow um yeah. lights it up all the way through yeah
4: And there's a couple more in this kind of space that I really enjoyed Um, in both similar in many ways. Um, Nick Durden's The Smallest Things, which is about this writer, uh, Nick Durden, his 98-year-old grandmother moves in with them, him and his wife and his family. And he finally at that moment has, oh, my God, this person who I've just kind of been in the background, gave cards to, was there in Christmas, actually was a real-life person, did things in their youth had a a kind of scandalous youth. And he goes in and kind of finds out what she was up to. It's really funny. And it's kind of about bringing people together in a way and rediscovering what your family's all about. It's really lovely. Mm. And sort of similar to that, because it's about aging, but it's Guy Cannaway's Time to Go, which is about Guy's mother, 88-year-old mother, who's old and infirm, asking him, (laughs) and this is quite difficult, I suppose, uh, to help her commit suicide, now, obviously, euthanasia is a huge issue. That's kind of been news lately. But it's more than that. Assisted suicide it's a kind of useful tool. <laughs> it's strange I'm using that kind of terms because it's actually happened in real life. But for them to get to know each other because they haven't really known each other for quite some long time, they've had a complicated relationship. And they kind of work this out through Her impending demise is really strange and really fascinating.
0: Mm -hmm. And books in the media-wise, what books are reviewers loving?
4: Well, Adele, Alice has just mentioned. It's quite interesting because the thing about Adele that I find fascinating was that uh, Faber, the publisher, kind of pitched her as a, a psychological thriller writer and they continue to do so and they package her as such in many ways. But she's not at all. I mean, she obviously won the Prix Goncourt. It's really fascinating how they've kind of turned that around. And I wonder how people's expectations have been met or lowered because of that. But anyway, critics are loving it. But one of the biggest and best reviewed books of the last week is Manisha Rajesh's Around the World and 80 Trains. It's one of those, what it says on the tin, travel, memoir-type books. She and her husband take various trains and circumnavigate the globe obviously not over the oceans but you know what I mean so it's a really fascinating look at you know the culture of trains and how we kind of get around on them and how it's a much more civilized and better form of travel and the joy of the book is the crazy people uh, (laughs) uh, she meets along the way I find it fascinating as well because British people, all they do is complain about trains all the time. That's not true, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they just complain about British ones, and it's such a joy when you get to say, I don't know, the Trans Siberian Railroad and everything runs better than uh, Southern trains.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think there should be another book. Maybe you could write it called The British People and Trains. (laughs) I would definitely read that. And um, the Cat Person Person's book is out. Yes, The
4: Cat Person Person. Probably most people know of the story. In 2017, Kristen Rupenian uh, wrote a story for The New Yorker about a date that goes wrong in the subsequent actions of that. And it really struck a nerve, Me Too movement, sort of time's up sort of nerve. And it became the most read story in The New Yorker's history. And now this is the debut collection from this writer. And broadly, the themes are still around sex and dating and modern life. And critics are... I would say, sharply divided over it, Mm -hmm. which I think is quite interesting because chat on social media, and this cat person really lived on social media and the internet, and that's what kind of propelled it, was very starkly divided, and it seems the critics are in it. And if you look at who loves it and who doesn't love it so much, it kind of goes... Along with the sort of political affiliations of the newspapers and outlets. The outlets that you think are kind of more woke, as the kids say, (laughs) seem to have given it great reviews, and the ones who are, say, a bit more fusty and less woke don't like it so much.
0: Interesting. Thank you very much, Tom. Well, thank you. Now it's time to talk to Hannah Beckerman. Hannah worked in TV for 12 years before becoming a full-time author and journalist. If Only I Could Tell You is her second novel. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you you for having me. Now, people talk about the difficult second novel.
1: Was it a difficult second novel for you? Difficult, I think, would be an understatement. (laughs) I mean, it's been... I think the very fact that it's been five years between my debut and my second novel probably highlights the fact that it has been a little bit tricky. There are two failed novels in between. There's Ah. two novels that just I tried and just didn't work. So there's probably 250,000 words redrafted many times over two books that just didn't come to pass. So I'm sort of I'm trying to think of this now not as my second novel in a way it feels like my debut because it feels like so long since my debut was published and I feel like I've learnt so much in that five years of just writing and rewriting and rewriting. It sort of feels like a bit of a fresh start. But in another way it feels like my fourth book because there's two manuscripts on my computer <laughs> <laughs> that I've never seen the light of day. So
0: two novels locked away in a drawer somewhere will you ever get them out again or is that it? Have you just accepted it as part of the work that had to be done but will
1: not ever exist? One of them I think was like a really really flawed flawed project (laughs) that will never see the light of day again. It was a historical novel I don't know what I was doing writing historical novels I'm not an historical novelist, I'm a contemporary novelist but I sort of needed to kind of play with that to find that out. I had to kind of write a book. Other people might know that about themselves when they start. I didn't but the other book is a book that has I tried it in two different iterations. It's about a subject that is really close to my heart. I was going to do it actually for the next book and it still wasn't quite there. It will be a book at some point. It might not be for another twenty years, but the the subject and the characters in that book will I would play money on it would would end up in a book one day down the line. Um because it's something that I just really, really wanted to do and I think you, you sort of psychologically and emotionally have to be in the right place yourself to be able to tackle certain issues, particularly if they have some kind of personal resonance for you and it might just be that I am not quite at that place yet but I hope to be in the future.
0: Well, you certainly worked hard enough for it, haven't you? Um, I love the way that you acknowledge that it takes work. Cause I think often the press stories around books, you know, they tend to focus on the, you know, the sort of person that, you know, one day I, my hand slipped, I accidentally <laughs> wrote 80,000 words and then
1: someone gave me loads of money. <laughs> Whereas really, it's almost always involved hard work, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I think it's what's really interesting, like especially with around genuine debut novelists, if you look at the kind of crop that are coming up this year, and there's always just a kind of narrative around the idea that, as you say, they've kind of written this book and they've got the six-figure deal and everyone's fating them and as being the next big thing generally it's not their first book. And if it is their first finished manuscript they've done, it's not the first thing they've ever written. It's often they've been working away at short stories or they've been trying to do other things. Um, And I think it's really unhelpful if you're trying to write to have this narrative that someone else just kind of sits and beavers away for something for six months and suddenly they're like a you know, observe a new faces of a fiction it's very rarely the case. Yes, and it's not necessarily easy. They're worthwhile, we hope. Yeah, but uh, but also I think, you know, with writing it is so much kind of, you throw everything into it and it's it's the sort of sum total of everything that you feel and think and that takes time to kind of refine and work out how you're going to distill that into characters and stories and, and narrative that other people will be able to... With. I don't think most people can do that kind of overnight on a first attempt. Mm-hmm. So, two novels
0: abandoned on the cutting room floor, but I'm holding in my hand a copy of your actual published second novel, If Only I Could Tell You. Tell us a bit about it.
1: So it is about three women really. It's, it's about a woman called Audrey who is in her early 60s and at the beginning of the novel we discover that she has terminal cancer and she has two daughters in their 40s and they have not spoken for 30 years and Audrey the mother does not know the reason for their estrangement. She has two granddaughters, one by each daughter who have never been allowed to meet, who are now 17 and she desperately wants to find out what this rift and schism in the family is before she dies, and tries to repair the the estrangement in her family. I'm not going to give any
0: twists away, <laughs> of which there are um, many. I want to ask you, as a sort of a process question: How do you decide which information to keep
1: back from the reader, and when to reveal it? I think that comes really late in the process, actually. I mean, this book, I think, has been through 24 drafts pre-copy edit. Um, I think it was 12 before it even went on submission. And actually, once I was working with Harriet Bolton, my editor, we basically unpicked the story Mm -hmm. and sort of started again structurally. So the characters were the same, the story was the same. But in terms of when we revealed bits of information, that was a process of probably six months of really really detailed you know, red herring placing um, (laughs) restructuring to get those layers of narrative so that you would be slightly discombobulated as you were reading it
0: Well I think it's very generous of you to share the hard work that sits behind because it is very accomplished so I just read it thinking like (gasps) (gasps) how did I not know that before but it does that brilliant thing whereas I was surprised but didn't feel tricked that's the thing isn't it with readers you want to be surprised by what happens but not feel that you've had
1: the wool pulled over Mm. your eyes in any way. Well it's that thing of, of it has to not come out of the blue so if Mm -hmm. you reread the novel you want the reader to understand of course that's where it was all leading to and of course there's that hint there and of course I misread that chapter where I thought it was about x but actually it was about y so I think it's about making sure that by the time the reader gets to the end if they reread it they would understand everything that was there that was leading up to those revelations as they come. I really liked the dedication to this book um, which is I'm going to read it for Aurelia From
0: whom I promise never to keep secrets.
1: Yeah, so that's my daughter. She is six. And um, I'm really interested by the toxicity of secrets and how, you know, there is still, within kind of English culture particularly, this kind of stiff upper lip, let's kind of keep everything very hidden. I'm from a family where we like to get everything out in the open. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes with, you know, friends or, you know, with my partner, there are culture clashes in that dynamic. And I am just intrigued by the way that some families manage to keep hold of really important information about their family history or relationships. They think that by not talking about it, it doesn't have an effect. And of course... By holding on to secrets they just come out in different ways whether it's in you know, acting out in bad behaviour or in dysfunctional relationships elsewhere or in insomnia or in unhealthiness or in illness and those secrets will find a way out and that's what I really wanted to explore in this book is the way that the secrets that people think they have hidden come out in behaviours and relationships elsewhere. I just feel with families that if there is one thing that kind of almost silently rips families apart emotionally it's not being honest and open and uh, when my husband and I very early on decided that we would be very very honest and open about everything so there are various schisms in my family that we have told her about from a very early age and Um, that she is you know kind of as aware of as you can be when you're six but I don't you know I always had that feeling I didn't want her to get to kind of 10 or 11 and I'll suddenly say well you know there's this person that you've never met who blah 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 blah." and so I I just feel that it's much kind of healthier really to not have those kind of secrets because I think that's where tensions inevitably lie. And
0: what does Aurelia
1: think about mummy being a writer? (laughs) I actually mentioned in the acknowledgements that my daughter said to me, Mummy, um, if I can write a book in two days, why does it take you two years? Which is, I guess, a fair point, because it does only take her two days to write a book. No, you know this, You know, having a child of a similar age. There is something so kind of wonderful about their pride and their excitement. So every time we got another quote in, she'd go, oh, Marianne Keyes has quoted. Oh, she has no idea who Marianne <laughs> Keyes is, other than me saying, I really, really hope that Marianne Keyes likes the book. So every time another quote came in, and every time I go to school, pick up like her teacher will say she's been talking about your book again when is it out again and then we can just all go and buy it and we can stop talking about it so she is my sort of unofficial publicist and main champion maybe she will write a book herself in the future that might take just a little bit longer than two <laughs> a little words. bit longer we're going to do bbc 500 words competition mm-hmm. i think that's a good start 500 words rather than a hundred thousand. um tell me the book's about to come out do you feel nervous is that a rhetorical question <laughs> <laughs> um Nervous, I don't think, would even begin to describe it. I feel, I would say, sort of preoccupied on a pretty much constant ambient level about what will happen in a few weeks' time. Yes. As well as being a writer yourself, you also interview writers at festivals. Does that help with the nerves, take your mind off yourself a little? I think I just find it really useful because I I sort of use them all, those, those... um, events, I kind of use them as a sort of personal writing masterclass. <laughs> so I always find ways of asking authors who I admire and look up to about their writing processes and what they do and how they do it. And so it feels like a real, just a real privilege. And I often come away and scribble down some notes about something that someone much cleverer than I has said about their writing processes. So it just, it feels like a kind of, yeah, a personal masterclass.
0: So writing, journalism, interviewing authors,
1: you have a really full writing life. What do you? like best about it or not having to go to an office I like I quite like being on my own which I guess most writers do and I like the variety I mean I think also being kind of a novelist and a journalist and doing events there's just such a kind of rich variety one day I'm writing you know questions for an event and the next day I'm back in the next novel with characters who only exist in my head for the next probably year and a half. Hannah Beckerman,
0: it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Very best of luck with the book. If only I could tell you, it is published on the 21st of February. Thank you. Right, I'm now going to hand you over to Nigel to quiz The Book Doctors.
5: Thanks, Cathy. If this is your first time listening to The Bookseller podcast, then you'll want to know what The Book Doctors is all about. Uh, Nothing medical, nothing to feel squeamish about. Just me talking to two of our finest indie bookshops and getting their reading recommendations for members of the public. So the public, they're the patients, and these are the doctors. Ian Corley from the historic town of Battle in East Sussex joins us. So presumably 1066 and all that's a bestseller from his Rother Books. And from Harrogate, we have Imagine Things' Georgia Duffy. So, hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. So, before we chat about the books, uh, let's find out a little bit more about the shops. Ian, you started Rother Books in November 2017, after a long career with Ottakers and Waterstones. Now, I've been to Battle, Ian. It's not, how can I put this, um, enormous. Um, <laughs> so, why there?
6: Well, it's a town I've always loved. It's a historic town, as you mentioned in your introduction, the site of the Battle of Hastings. It's got a really nice mix of uh, some chain retailers some lots of independents, lots of villages in the surrounding area. are really lovely and, and lots of people come in to shop in battle and you get loads and loads of tourists over the summer as well. So it's a nice mix.
5: Oh, that sounds good. And, and were you already there? Was, is that your neck of the woods?
6: I live about uh, 40 minutes away, but it's oh, a okay. town I've always liked. Uh, I'd always hoped that Waterstones or Rottigas might have opened in battle, but uh, it was probably a bit too small, uh, so I've taken advantage and done it myself. Yeah, I bet, I bet you don't want them to
5: open now. Certainly uh, don't. <laughs> uh, and George, you're up in Harrogate. Uh, there, you're something of a media legend with a, with a Twitter event that, that showed the good side of social media, which doesn't often happen. What happened? Remind us what happened there.
7: Oh well, um we've been open coming up a year and we just had um, quite a quiet time so um, I decided to put a tweet out um, saying we've only taken twelve pounds thirty four today and if someone would liked to come and buy a book then now would be a great time, um, along those lines and it just it just went crazy. It went completely viral, I wasn't expecting it. Um it was seen by like one point six million people in <laughs> That's the end. <laughs> Yeah, um, I was really not expecting that at all. I just thought, oh, if a few more people know, you know, that we've been struggling and we need more support, um, then, you know, if they come in, that would be great. Um, And they did. Um, Even from the next day, we just had the most mental week and weeks following. And, yeah, it was
5: phenomenal. Oh, that's fantastic. And, And it sustained itself. So it was a case of kind of getting known in the first place.
7: Yes, it's definitely helped us in the long run. Um, we were still like much busier than we had been up till Christmas. We had a much much better Christmas. Um, but I mean, we need to grow anyway because we're so new, so it's really helped us. to to do what we needed to do. So, yeah, no, it's it's helped us enormously
5: along the way. Oh, fantastic. Well, let's get to the books. So we've got three readers here. John uh, lives in London. He works very hard in IT. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? And the last book he read was GCHQ, The Uncensored Story of Britain's Most Secret Intelligence Agency, which he loved. And the sort of books that he likes are the kind of... I'm trying to remember the section of this, but the, the sort of books that would be featured in The Economist, so something like Malcolm Gladwell, something like that. But for his next book, he's thinking more of fiction than non-fiction, so maybe a thriller, maybe not too long. Um, so, Ian, w- what would you suggest if John came through your doors?
6: Well, I was going to suggest a thriller, actually. Mick uh, Heron has done this fantastic series of books, and they're known as the Slough House novels. And the first one in the series is called Slow Horses. And these slow horses are, are spies. They're spies who screwed up. They haven't, they haven't messed up enough to get sacked, but they've been sent to this dreadful building called Slough House, which is in a rough part of London and is next to a dodgy Chinese restaurant and they're there to perform lots of administrative boring tasks and they're presided over by this monstrous figure called Jackson Lamb and he smokes a lot and drinks a lot and is flatulent and uh, very politically incorrect but knows everything that's going on and by hook or by crook these slow horses, these failed spies get involved in proper espionage it's very easy to read. It's very well written, though, and unlike other spy novels, it's also incredibly funny, really, really funny. And the good thing is if John likes it, there are four more in the series which he can then read, but he doesn't need to read them in the right order because lots of things happen. So I think you'd love it. Everyone, everyone loves Mick Heron. He's just terrific.
5: Yeah, no, I, I, was, I, I read him for the first time myself uh, about six months ago, uh, and I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Now, now say again, the, this one in particular... It's called Slow Horses... OK, so uh, we have Mick Heron. Georgia, what were you thinking of for John?
7: I was thinking of um, Kalimpski Heights by Lionel Davidson. Um, now, it's been out a while, um, but it, it's amazing. Um, and it, it's one of my favourite ever thrillers. Um, and it's also described by um, Philip Pullman as the best thriller he's ever read. And I thought um, the fact that John was looking for something with like politics and science in it, it's got a little bit of both. There's this super secret Russian scientific base like hidden deep in the Russian permafrost like so secret like barely anyone even knows that it's there Um, and they don't know what they're experimenting on there but um, a desperate scientist manages to get a message out for someone to come to the base and you follow the protagonist Ronnie Porter um, through quite a complex sort of mission of getting near to the base you know you're really drawn into that cold world um, that sort of world of him having to pass himself off as all sorts of different people to sort of even get anywhere near the base like never mind in it um, and what you find there is is intriguing and surprising and the the whole novel is just beautiful.
5: Well, those are fantastic. And so that one was Kaminsky Heights, so I think we've done John Proud there. So let's move on to Sophie. And Sophie lives in Peterborough, and this is a nice one for us. The last book that Sophie read was A Different Drummer, and she read that after hearing it recommended on uh, our podcast last time. So that's great. Normally she's a novel uh, reader. Her favourite writer is someone I haven't read, is Rumor Godden. But what she'd like is, having read a different drama, she'd like more recommendations for novels that explore race and the legacy of slavery. So, Ian, what are you thinking
6: of? Well, I'm going with a book I'm actually reading at the moment, which is The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. It it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017. Uh, It's an American book about the slave trade in the US, and it's set with this uh, girl called Cora, who's a slave on a plantation in Georgia. And then she becomes friendly with a fellow slave called Caesar, And they hatched this plan to escape the ranch they're on uh, via this underground railroad. Now, I don't know a huge amount about the history of this, but I gather there was this underground railroad where slaves could escape to the north. But in this book, what Colson White has done is create the railroad as an actual physical thing. It's a slightly dilapidated train which will take these slaves away. And it's just brilliantly written. I mean the sheer horror of this, you know, the slavery in the, in the US is just atrocious, it really is. And he brings it to life, but he writes so beautifully as well and, and I think it's absolutely gripping. Barack Obama loved it. Uh, Simon Mayo said it's one of the best books he's read in recent years and, and it seems to be just I think perfect for what Sophie's looking for.
5: Well that, that, is, that I think is perfect and I think Simon Mayo will be chuffed to bits to be mentioned in the same sentence as Barack Obama so um, there's a nice <laughs> one for Simon there. Um, uh, George Georgia, what about you?
7: I'm actually recommending um, the exact same title um, with that one. So it comes highly recommended. Um, and I think um, part of why I think it will be a really good one is that it, it looks at, you know, the horror of the time, um, but it's also like a meld of genres. Like it's partly, it has the quality of an allegory. There's bits of fantasy in there, but but not to diminish the truth of what happened. And it draws parallels with what's happening today you know, it's, it sort of stands as sort of a representation of sort of anything like that that's happened to people, not just the American slavery, um, so I think it's really important um, novel.
5: Well, that's great. Well, if you have two Indies recommending the same book, that's got to be pretty good, hasn't it? Cathy, I think you were, you were going to suggest something for Sophie.
0: Well, I agree, The Underground Railroad is so good, I want to recommend it too but also there's a book called Homegoing by Yaa Gayazi, which is a couple of years ago, and That is another truly wonderful novel and that looks at two sisters and their descendants and one of them is taken as a slave and crosses the ocean and the other one stays in Ghana and then eventually the two storylines intertwine but it's... Absolutely wonderful. And a book I mentioned, I think, last month, it's not coming out till April. So it's a little bit of a wait. But it's called The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins. And it's wonderful. That's set in London. uh, And this woman, Franny Langton, has been gifted, given to this couple who end up murdered, and she's on trial for their murder. And it's spectacular.
5: OK, well, that's got Sophie well and sorted out for the next few weeks, Well, and unless she's a very slow reader, in which case it's the next few months. And our final reader that we've got here is from Yorkshire, and she's Liz, she's a retired nurse. She most recently read, uh, as did a lot of people, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which she really enjoyed. But that's not her normal thing. Her normal thing is gentle crime novels, the Agatha Christie's, uh, Patricia Wentworth, and she'd like to find a series like The Brother Cadfile, the Ellis Peters books. So it doesn't have to be a kind of classic crime. Uh, It could be modern, except maybe not too gory or violent. Um, So, Ian, where were you heading on this?
6: Well, originally, I was going to recommend the British Library crime series, which has come up on this podcast before. uh, But I thought I'd do something a bit different uh, for Liz. And I'm suggesting she try the Donna Leon crime book set in Venice
5: oh they are fantastic aren't they well I
6: just love them and I think Donna Leon she's American but she lived in Venice for a very very long time and yes they're crime novels but they're not very violent and it's almost the crimes are almost incidental to what's going on it's really about the culture of Venice the corruption the politics and her policeman commissario Guido Brunetti is different from most modern policemen in crime fiction. Normally they're alcoholics and loners and have no family. He's very happily married. He goes home for lunch every day with his wife, who's a professor at university and teenage children. The descriptions of food are just fantastic. And he's got a monstrous boss called Pata who's just—he's from Sicily and doesn't understand Venice at all. And they're just a really, really great series. She really brings Venice to life, really gets to grips with what's going on in that city. And if Liz likes them, there's about I don't know, 25 in the series and you don't have to read them in any order. So she can just choose different ones. So that was my suggestion.
2: Now, that is a very
5: good suggestion. I've got a funny feeling that my mum and dad are particularly fond of that series. Um, now, I'm... I'm slightly terrified now, Georgia, that that was exactly what you were going to say. Please tell me it's not, otherwise I'm <laughs> oh. going to feel so guilty. Uh, no, no, it's
7: not. It's <sighs> not. It's <fine. laughs> yeah, we're not completely in sync with those, so that's good. Um, I've got something else. So I found the perfect one, um, actually, for Liz. Um, it's the Dales Detective series by the lovely Julia Chapman. Um, now, they're set in Yorkshire. Um, They're perfect, cosy crime, you know, there's no gory details or anything like that, but they're still a good mystery. You know, they're still, you know, gripping and interesting and funny. And it's um, based around um, Samson is a detective who's been dismissed from the police force. Um, And he's a bit of like a black sheep of the local community. It's set in Bruncliffe, which is like um, a fictional village in the Yorkshire Dales and he's come back to town and they sort of all him as a bit of a black sheep but he sets up a dale's detective agency in the same building as delilah who set up a dale's dating agency and he's asked to investigate um, a a supposed suicide Um, and then they find a trail of deaths that lead back to the door of delilah's dating agency so they end up kind of having to reluctantly work together um, to find out what's going on in the town and they're, they're just really good Can you recommend them enough
5: oh that, that sounds a great series so you know venice to yorkshire we've got to got something right for liz there that's great before we go why don't both of you just give me one book that you know it could be one that you're selling really well through your shops or you know one that you wish was selling more because you think it's so great so just one book that you personally recommend ian what would you go for
6: Well the book I'd recommend is Sea Shaken Houses by Tom Narcolis which I loved and which is pleasingly also selling really really well in the shop. It's a history of rock lighthouses which were built in the 19th century around Ireland and the British Isles which you might think is a bit of a niche subject but he's just this most fantastic lyrical poetic writer who really brings to life the ingenuity that the Victorian showed in terms of building these lighthouses on lumps of rock. Sometimes several miles out to sea and uh, and the people who lived in them and you know it's just extraordinary just what an achievement it was that these sea shaken houses were built in those days and he talks to people who uh, worked on the lighthouses when they were manned and so he gets the stories of what it was like he spends a week in a lighthouse and gets that sense of the loneliness and you know for what it must be like for people who there for four months i mean it's just full of extraordinary tales like sort of engineers going out a couple of years ago to one of them and, and there was a storm and they're literally thrown out of their beds because of the violence of the storm, and they were there for two days, not the sort of five months potentially that some of the lighthouse keepers would be, and it's it's just a brilliant, brilliant book. I loved it.
5: Yeah, and I I've, I've got a mental picture of it. It's not it's not a, a a heavy duty nonfiction. It's not one of those sort of ones where you're going to be ploughing through page after page of detailed things about how they built it. You know, there's just enough for you to get a sense of the technical difficulties involved, but nothing too heavy. Well, that's a great choice. I think that's an extremely good choice. And Georgia, what about up in Harrogate?
7: Um, I was going to um, recommend um, The Boy Who Followed His Father Into Auschwitz by Jeremy Dronfield, which is a true story. Um, He's a historian, um, but it reads like a novel, but it's very, very heavily researched. And it tells the story of um, Gustav and Fritz Kleinman, who were father and son, who survived six years of the Holocaust together from Nazi occupation to, they were then uh, prisoners of the Nazis from Buchenwald to Auschwitz um the death marches to Bergen-Belsen and, and lots of other places and they both made it through the holocaust and got home alive together against all of the odds and it's their story and it, it, we just got it in the other day and I just I couldn't put it down it's, it's horrifying obviously um you know everything that went on there but just the fact you, you know you it's also a hopeful story you know they did survive um despite the horrors um, and I just think it's so important that it's remembered. And with the tattoos it has being so popular at the moment, that this is, you know, sort of a more historical version of that, um, less artistic license than this one, but, um, you know, still a, a kind of a gripping read about that time.
5: Yeah, no, I think that's very good. And there was that shocking statistic about uh, how many people were were either not aware of the Holocaust or refuted its existence. So I think that's a very timely choice. Well, listen, thank you both very much, and and bye. See you soon.
6: Thanks very much. Thank you.
5: That was Ian Corley of Rother Books in Battle and Georgia Duffy of Imagine Things in Harrogate. Great bookshops. If you're ever in their part of the world, pop in, and why not buy one of their recommendations?
0: Thank you, Nigel. Now, we're nearly at the end of the show, but before we go, let's travel up and down the country a bit to some of the brilliant bookish events that are happening out there. Nigel.
5: Yes, indeed, and I've got some ideas for our listeners from bookgig.com, which I'm pleased to announce that the bookseller has taken over from our good friends at HarperCollins. Stacey Halls is talking about her debut The Familiars set around the 17th century Pendle Hill witch trials. In Oxford, Lancaster, London, Cambridge, Leeds, Edinburgh—everywhere, basically.
0: I must say, I loved this book. Um, I do enjoy books about witchcraft, and this is really good on sort of female friendship. The historical detail is magnificent, so I would strongly urge everybody out to see Stacey in person. What else? Uh,
5: if you want a fantastic family-based Saturday, this is sixteenth of February. Head to the Royal Festival Hall in London for a trio of Waterstones Children's Laureates. Jacqueline Wilson, Chris Riddell, Mallory Blackman—that's one heck of a lineup, isn't it? I'll squeeze one last one in. Melinda Harrison is talking about *All Among the Barley* at the Faversham Literary Festival on Sunday, the twenty-fourth of February. I thought *All Among the Barley* was stunning. That's it. Hundreds more on BookGig.com.
0: Wonderful. That's it for now. In our next podcast, we'll be talking about March, and we'll have two new book doctors in the chair. Please tweet at the Bookseller or come to our Facebook page and tell us what you'd like us to cover in future podcasts or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe. And, as you may be doing right now, you can listen to us at thebookseller.com. Thanks to all our contributors, thanks to the book doctors for their picks, and thanks also to the readers who sent in their questions. Now, a huge treat. One of the most anticipated books in February is Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Man Booker Prize-winning author Marlon James. Here is Dion Graham reading from it, and this is a clip from the beginning of the book where a child has been found dead and Tracker must relate the news. And that will end the third edition of the Bookseller podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading.
2: The child is dead. There is nothing left to know. I hear there is a queen in the south who kills the man who brings her bad news. So when I give word of the boy's death, do I write my own death with it? Truth eats lies, just as a crocodile eats the moon. And yet my witness is the same today as it will be tomorrow. No, I did not kill him. Though I may have wanted him dead. Craved for it the way a glutton craves goat flesh. Oh to draw a bow and fire it to his black heart and watch it explode black blood, and to watch his eyes for when they stop blinking, when they look but stop seeing, and to listen for his voice croaking and hear his chest heave in a death rattle, saying, Look, my wretched spirit leaves this most wretched of bodies, and to smile at such tidings and dance at such a loss. Yes, I glut at the conceit of it, but no, I did not kill him.